This is an ABC podcast. Hello from Norm on the lands of the Kulin Nation. I'm Beverly Wang and this is Life Matters. What is your love language? How do you show love? How do you love to receive love? You're sharing your love language stories. And in the Too Hard Basket, the case of the uninvited house guest. Let's talk. How do you show someone you love them? Saying these three words, I love you, might just be scraping the surface. You know, kissing somebody, cuddling, cooking them tacos, sharing a funny video, or booking a holiday are other material ways to show love. We can show our love and affection in so many ways, but not always are made equal and not always are received well. So if you've been anywhere near the internet lately, you might have seen people declare their love languages as folded laundry or sarcasm. But the idea of five love languages has been around for decades and has helped a lot of people better understand their relationships. So let's find out how this can be helpful for you. So What's your love language? I was thinking about this and I think I'm a feeder. I love to offer food. I love to make sure people are taken care of. So maybe that's an act of service as well as a a giving of a gift. I also like to receive quality time and acts of service and words of affirmation. I love to give them, love to receive them. So I want to welcome Liz Neal, a couples therapist and psychologist. Welcome to Life Matters, Liz. Thanks for having me, Beverly. It's great to have you here. Let's jump into love languages. Can you give a little bit of the backstory of the how they originated? Yeah, so Gary Chapman developed love languages a good 40 years ago. So he had been working with couples. He had been seeing couples. Um, and he re- re- recognised that there are these patterns, these patterns of communication that were established. And he also, it seems discovered some tension in his own relationship and he realized that he and his own wife had different love languages so he he put all of this together and he actually has a background in anthropology so he's a behavioral scientist originally working with couples and then observing what's going on between couples and then concluded that he could find five love languages that really kind of fit what he saw couples needing mm-hmm. in giving and receiving. Yeah. And so the five love languages, just to recap, words of affirmation. Qu- words of affirmation, quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service and physical touch. Right. And so in terms of thinking a bit more about this, you say he's an anthropologist. He was a marriage counselor and also a, a pastor, a Southern Baptist pastor. Um, correct. What is there... Is there, I suppose, is this an evidence-based concept besides his own anecdotal experience working with so many couples? So it doesn't have rigorous research behind it, unlike some of the other models that we might be familiar with in in looking at relationships, like the Gottman model, for instance, has got a lot of evidence behind it. So this one doesn't in particular. However, you know, it still is a theory, and it's a theory that seems to work really, really well. Um, It's a really easy to understand and uh, um, a lot of couples just find that the language that they can take from looking at these five love languages can articulate what they need in a relationship, what they they also feel that they're not getting in a relationship and, as we know, how we can express love. So while it doesn't have rigorous empirical research behind it, I don't think that that 
necessarily matters because it seems to work really well. And it does seem that these categories are quite astute. I was thinking actually, and I put the feelers out to sort of my network before Mm. coming on today. And I asked people, you know, do you think you could come up with a different category? Are there any categories that are missing? And we sort of concluded that anything that came in really already fits within one of these five categories. So it does seem quite astute and does just seem to work really well. Now, Liz, we talked about uh, the fact that it's not necessarily evidence-based, but it has endured mm. for 30 years. It is a, a million, multi-million uh, best-selling book that Gary Chapman wrote, and it's taken on a life of its own on mm. the internet. We see so many mm-hmm. jokey love language posts and memes. I referred to some folded laundry, sarcasm, cut fruit, <laughs> all sorts of things. And so clearly, we in the culture have somehow, um, it's resonated with us and we've become attached to us. And it does provide a very tangible framework, I think, to think about what you do and be able to Mm. slot it in under one of those five categories. But what do you think about the way that it's taken on another life on the internet? What What accounts for that? Yeah, look, I think this is probably one of the reasons why, despite it not having any rigorous scientific research behind it, it just it's it's taken off because it is a communication tool of its own right people can really relate to it and you know i find that couples will really struggle to express their needs you know we sort of say we can ask the question what is it do you think you need and a lot of the time people don't really know you know they'll say i'm not, I'm not quite sure so these um categories have given people a really um systematic way of expressing assumptions and expectations in relationships because what happens when couples get into conflict or they start to feel tension they fundamentally are having different expectations right so we have conflict and tension when our expectations aren't met we have these assumptions about giving and receiving and when they don't occur we start to feel hurt we start to feel disappointed we feel vulnerable we feel let down and then we try to communicate about that but the um, love languages have provided this way of describing our needs. And so I think that because it's so simple but so uh, relatable, Mm. it's just allowed people to to express this in really simple terms, which is really kind of what the internet is about, right? It's about really simple ideas being expressed and conveyed in, in memes, in, in, yeah. in, in visual ways of, of relating. That kind of related, immediate relatability. That's Liz Neal, a couples therapist and psychologist. We're talking about love languages. We've got lots of texts coming in. One text is relating to a primary school memory. In primary school, a lovelorn suitor threw a frog at me. I didn't realize his <laughs> ardor at the time. And 50 years later, I still wonder what would have happened if I'd given it back. I wonder, what is that? Is that a, a receiving gifts, I suppose? <laughs> <laughs> that one might fall into the category of that. And there's one from Neil who says, uh, years ago, a female friend said to me, men who often can't express their love verbally or in other ways to their family show their love by working and staying in jobs they often hate to support their families with a silent love. Oh, mm. that's a big one. What do you? That's a kind of a death of a salesman uh, vibe to me, mm. Liz. That's uh, possibly it's- not showing love to yourself while you are expressing your love language to others. And the quandary mm. of it, it being silent, it might not be seen as that. Absolutely not. And I think that is where people will get stuck, right? So 
uh, often people are giving in the relationship, but it just doesn't get noticed by the other person. If it's not verbalised, right, if it's not kind of laid out in vivid detail to be seen and heard and understood. But also it'll be an issue if the partner doesn't identify with that love language, right? Um, I remember when my husband and I had our first child, I came, you know, the first year I kept saying, I need emotional support, I need emotional support. And he was saying to me, but I'm cooking you dinners, I'm making mm. you food, I'm giving you time on your own. And then we sort of realised, oh, the language I'm using here and the language he's using here isn't aligning. So we're not really talking about the same thing, right? So we need to be able to articulate and recognise, right, so you're working hard, you're doing all of this, and this is your way of loving me. So that leads me to my next question, Liz Niels. How do we develop these love languages? Is it based on, uh, you know, our childhood experiences or is it just an innate, innate kind of preference? Mm. What's, the, what's the answer there? I think probably they, they are conditioned, right? So, you know, if you grow up in a household where every time a birthday comes around, there's gifts you know, there's presents, there's the excitement in, you know, buying gifts for your siblings when you're younger and then on your own birthday, you know, all those gifts come in and then that's going to be really kind of ingrained as almost like a procedural memory. You know, it's almost like, you know, we're not even aware that that's how we're being conditioned. So we go into our future relationships expecting gifts on a birthday and on the flip side, if gifts were not a part of a celebration, but perhaps food was instead, mm. then then we're conditioned to have these fundamental, implicit, kind of subconscious, if you like, assumptions about giving and receiving in relationships. And I also think it's quite possible that the first relationship, you know, if you think about when you start dating, maybe your first relationship chip is sort of in your late teens, again, you're getting conditioned there as well at the beginning of your ideas about romantic relationships, about what giving and receiving means. So I would say most of it is conditioning. Um, uh, that would be the best way to describe how these get formed. When you talk about gifts there, I think that's so interesting because that's one that gets raised a lot and we don't realize until we really examine what's happening, the dynamics underneath, what a gift can mean. Mm. You know, is it loaded with anticipation by the giver to the receiver mm -hmm. and the giver really wants that big reaction uh, and, yes. and that, that ingraining that can happen from childhood, right? Parent-child relationships. And, and on the other hand, um, being overwhelmed by gifts and feeling like, mm. I just want you to tell me that you love me mm. and, and a gift yes. perhaps being seen as a shortcut to that. So many misunderstandings in love languages. Uh, yes. And, and, and that's and, the thing I wanted to talk about next is what happens when you have a clash in love languages, for example, and, and you might not even have the awareness to step back and realize that is what's happening. How do you begin that process of untangling that? Absolutely. So the first thing for us to sort of be aware of is that it's not necessarily about the surface level love language. It's really about what meaning a person attributes to it, right? So with the gift idea, it does, does the meaning mean that, you know, I've thought of you, you're important to me, you're important to spend money on, um, mm -hmm. therefore this is my way of showing you? Or as you say, um, actually, 
you know, it's easier for me to just buy something online. I don't even need to think about it. Um, and so, or is that what's projected onto the giver of a gift? So it is really fundamental to find out what is the meaning attributed or misattributed, right? So um, is one person misattributing the meaning, as we can kind of see there, in a negative way? And that's usually where we will be vulnerable, right? So the gift giver who, the, the, the receiver who thinks, you know, it's just easy for you to just go and buy something without really putting much effort into it, this will get re- this will come up in conflict and this is where people will um, have scripts in their mind about the intentions of the other and so conflict isn't necessarily a bad thing right this 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 brings up an opportunity to learn in a relationship and to learn what the meaning is and to to kind of verbalize what's underneath the behavior so that we can sort of see where we're um, misinterpreting the intention of the other person. Christopher, in Sydney, you have multiple love languages. Tell us about them. Well, I was very much a person, like giving massage and touching is um, is my most common love language. And then I didn't really know how to use words to express my feelings. And it was a learning process over uh, through my 20s that I learned how to say I love you and how to uh, combine um being a toucher and and uh, looking after people physically, then uh, learning how to say "I love you" and and what that means to uh, a lot of people. And so, how did you begin the process of figuring that out, Christopher? Was it uh, partners giving you feedback, or just kind of a a, a thought process for you? Yeah, it was also um, me generally through self-development learning to verbalize my feelings and that process of self-development that I do I went through a lot because I went almost well if I'd been met if I'd met the wrong kind of uh, uh, medical practitioner when I was about 20 or or that period 19 20 21 I might have ended up in an insane asylum back in the 70s because uh, I was really going through a lot of problems and I managed to work it out by doing spiritual practice and um, and some uh, alternative types of psychotherapy like Reiki and therapy. Well, Christopher, one of the things yes, I want, go ahead. One of the things I, I want, one of the things I wanted to contribute was uh, an extension of what you were just talking about is that I sometimes wonder if um, in an abusive situation, if sometimes the abuser gets away with a lot because they use the love language of the victim and they'll say, I love you, and as a result, and they'll say all these affirming, beautiful things, and the mm. person will forgive them mm. their um, bad behaviour, their abuse, because they use they they they're waiting and they're happy to receive uh, their love language, saying "I love you" and all these nice things, and it means that they forgive the abuser. That's a really interesting question, Christopher. Thank you so much for your call, and we're glad you're on the right path of your recovery. Liz, Neil, what are your thoughts on Christopher's very important question? Yes, look, I think it's a very good point, and I think it is probably, you know, a very realistic uh, situation where someone who has a kind of coercive aspect to their personality kind of, you know, it sounds like he's describing someone who would be quite menacing and therefore Yes, you know, aware of how to use 
love languages in a way, in fact, not to give love but really to control. So that really is sitting on that other side there of, of relationships which uh, would probably, you know, be, be very distressing for, for people. Um, yeah. We've got a text here, Liz, that I'm going to chuck mm-hmm. at you. Sarah mm-hmm. in Brisbane wants to know, what do you do when your love languages don't align? Who adapts mm. to who, the lover and the beloved? My father wasn't really emotionally available as my mother would have liked. He showed his love by staying in a job he disliked, as you've said, but also by fixing and building things around the house, which I think led me to desire partners with strong DIY skills. Mm. Look, I've got some good news for this. So we some of the research has shown that two-thirds of couples' conflict is perpetual. Right, so even in the happiest of couples, we're going to have two-thirds of our conflict which has no solution there's no resolution and this fits perfectly within this idea of perpetual unsolvable problems right so um the 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 really important thing is to recognize where do our differences lie and can we have conversations and dialogue that allows us to understand more about what is needed it's a two-way street here so it's not necessarily going to imply that one person needs to adapt and change to the other person's expectations. But where there's a really good fundamental, un- good strong sense of friendship and intimacy in a relationship, plus a really good system for conflict management, these differences can really be dealt with and understood over years and compromise can occur. So it's, I think what we have to do is expect, in fact, that there will be mismatches in love languages, rather than some goal being that they that that they don't occur in a mismatched sense, or in fact think that a mismatch is a problem, right? I think we need to expect fundamentally we're going to be misaligned on a whole range of areas in life. But the key is to be able to understand, like I said with my husband over the years, I've realized, oh, this is his way of really showing support and nurture to me, right? Which is very different to my expectations when I came into the relationship. So the love difference in love languages isn't necessarily a problem. What really needs to happen is that there's a strong sense of connection, a willingness to see things from the other person's point of view rather than just hold on to our own view, to really kind of be flexible in our thinking, and then also having a good system for managing where, because it will be within conflict that these issues become problematic. And so a good conflict management system will be really important as well. So being able to name it when you're feeling that lack or that dissonance is part of your toolkit is what I'm hearing from you, Liz Neal. Absolutely. And the love languages give us labels. You know, we can say, we can use these these labels to to kind of say, you know, I I realise that, you know, you're disappointed because you were expecting, you know, more of a celebration with gifts on our anniversary. And I was there thinking we were just going to have more kind of physical touch, yes. right? So we can, we have now the, we've got these beautiful sort of descriptors to describe where we were expecting different things. And I think it's, is it implicit in the, in the, even the terminology love language? You know, language is learned. Is there the possibility of learning a new language and adapting that way? For example, is a person's love language dependent on the relationship that they're in? 
That's a really good question. I, I, I think it can certainly can certainly be, uh, you know, an, an adjusting process to change a love language through the course of a good relationship. But I, I do think that it, that would really come down to fundamentals and, and maybe even personality, right, of the person. Mm. So if we have some capacity, you know, to be really flexible in our thinking and maybe previously in a previous relationship someone focused more on physical touch or words of affirmation but then can really see, in fact, in this other relationship acts of service plays out, um, it's going to really come down to the ability to be flexible and adaptable. But absolutely, yes, we can certainly, I think these um, love languages can be dynamic in our lives. And Liz, we've been talking a lot about uh, partnered relationships, romantic relationships, but I reckon love languages are also, as you, you've said before, they're, they're formed in our early lives, a parent-child relationship. So you can have a love language uh, in your friendships or, uh, you know, a parent-child relationship and, and extended family. That's all possible, right? It's not restricted Abs- to your romantic partner. Absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. All relationships will have some kind of code of giving and receiving. And and so this will sort of absolutely spread out to, you know, your family, children, parents, colleagues, neighbours, you know, you're going to have this uh, this kind of, yeah, this code of giving and receiving and, and what the relationship is assembled on in terms of what goes on between two people. And 100% it can be generalised to all relationships. And... So just carrying on for that, I mean, we talked a little bit about love languages being incompatible or actively disliking it. Um, people are, I'm seeing some texts in, some people saying actually they had to adjust their love language. Uh, someone says on the text line, breast cancer treatment impacted physical contact. Luckily, we still mm. have acts of service. So it is something that can mm. change over time, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. As as circumstances change, as uh, you know, changes to each individual. Again, I think where we'll get stuck is if we stay rigid in our idea about what we need in our as a love language. So if we can't be flexible and we stay focused and only see then if there's an interruption to the expression of love through a love language, that's unavoidable, like something like cancer treatment that Mm -hmm. certainly does affect, you know, for many people, physical touch. You know, if if the people in the relationship are not able to be flexible in thinking around that for the sake of the relationship, then, yes, of course, we'll get into challenges, but I think that will reveal the quality of the relationship. And I think this is probably... Potentially one of the limitations of only looking at the relationship through love languages, you know, there's this, this, this is kind of the content of the giving and receiving between people. But I think what this, this model doesn't touch on is the systems that are occurring that hold love languages in place, right? So I've referred back to, you know, couples who have a strong connection of emotion anyway, are going to be able to navigate through differences far more easily than if they don't have that strong connection. Um, And couples who have really good skills for conflict management, you know, some couples will 
stay, you know, dig their heels in and only want to see things their way and get quite angry and upset Mm. um, when their needs aren't met and assume that the role of the partner is just to meet their own needs compared to other couples who are going to give and take a little and recognize, you know, these are the areas that I might feel a little bit disappointed in. But that's okay because we're making up for these things in other ways. Let's take a call now, Liz Neal. Elia is in Queensland and your love language has changed over time. Tell us about that. Yeah, hi Beverly. Um, my, uh, I started off, like we, I've been married for 30 years now and um, when we first came across the love languages through other friends, um, I was certain that my love language was quality time because all I wanted to do was you know, be together, spend time together. But what I what I discovered was that I was actually, my love language that I spoke was um, acts of service. So I was very big on, you know, doing things and this is how, and why isn't this working? And doesn't he see how much I love him and all of, all of that sort of stuff? And then I realized that's not his love language at all. Like, mm-hmm. and my partner's, my husband's love language is um, physical touch. Um, but then, you know, still over the years, um, I thought, you know, even when we're spending time together, it doesn't feel that great and, you know, I'm still missing something. And what I think happened is that I just sort of switched around to like words of affirmation. So still not matching with my with my husband, but understanding that that's mm. actually, you know, was more of a love language for me. And then like we, we've got four children and I just, I, so I used like the love languages with them too. And I just found it so like just helpful in understanding, um, you know, how to speak love to them is not mm. the way that I would speak love and also like the difference between the love language that you speak and the love language that you hear can be quite different too. Right. So this has kind of pervaded your entire family. Do you do you actually talk openly with your children about uh, the love languages and, and get them to kind of – Does that, do you find that it helps? Oh, definitely. In fact, um uh, what's his, uh, Gary, Gary, Gary Chapman, Gary Chapman, sorry, we um, got his book about for children and I've done, and teens too, and I've done the quizzes in that with them. And it was quite eye-opening for me too, like to discover that each one of them is different too. (laughs) So that's always, you know, a challenge with your parenting is that because like you want, you want your, you want to love your children and we all do things that we think is, you know, speaking love to them, but is it what they're hearing? So that's mm. always been a, you know, a thing for me. Like you have to speak the love language so that the child understands that they're loved by you. Because if you're, you know, if you're constantly cuddling in them, cuddling them and, you know, sitting close and all of that sort of stuff and they're kind of like, hmm, but you didn't buy me a birthday present, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like they don't feel the love, do yeah. they? Yeah, right. And it's interesting maybe being able to talk about it and have a framework gives them a better perspective about themselves as well. Elia, thank you so much for calling in and telling us all about your family's approach to love languages. It's not just for romantic relationships. It applies to family relationships, kids and teens as well. Let's go to Jeff in Sydney. Tell us uh, your story with love languages, Jeff. 
Hi, uh, I'm a paediatrician dealing with children with ADHD and uh, Asperger's and autism, and I very often see impact the impact because these conditions are genetic. Very often, the parents have the condition; they often haven't realised it, but the it can very significantly impact on their relationships because they forget birthday presents, because they react impulsively, they react in a volatile way, they might be involved in partner violence, they maybe say things that impulsively they. That they uh, that they regret and and that even though they still love the person they their immediate behaviour and their inattentiveness can often cause significant impact on the relationships and I think I find that that often isn't identified in the counselling world and I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that really go ahead Liz yeah look I think that that's really an interesting consideration uh, I certainly think it can play out in the counselling room and sometimes be missed if there's a lack of awareness around perhaps what's going on in terms of a diagnosis of ADHD, let's say. But I but I do think that it will come up in conflict once again. So, you know, we find out about these vulnerabilities because couples or a parent-child will have tension, but it's really in that moment of tension that certainly happens uh, in, in family therapy or couple therapy is that we kind of get underlying what's what's deeper, what is actually going on, uh, you know, in, that is causing the distress in the person and then we can find out and we can use the love language to find out, look, I really wanted to receive a gift on my birthday um, but then I suppose it is being able to look at what is causing, let's say, the the limitation on the person like something like distraction and lack of focus and inability to prioritize and plan um which which then i suppose we can kind of weave these two ideas together and and it provides us with a system to work through these disappointments that come up in these circumstances is that helpful to you jess jeff yes that's good thanks very much fantastic indeed. thank you so much for calling to life matters jesse in sydney tell us your story um, I I was in a loving friendship and uh, things uh, started to, to go wrong when uh, when the gifts that I was giving were misinterpreted. Mm. And what was happening was that the family that I came from, I lost my mother when I was quite young. And one way that people gave to me, there was an uncle in the family who would give me gifts. It was the only way that they could communicate their their empathy for me, um, because it was, my mother's death was never even talked about afterwards. So this person who um, suffered a really terrible tragedy in their life, I was their friend, and I loved them very much, and I gave them gifts. Sometimes they were personal gifts, they were cards made personally, um, they were personal items of various kinds, and, and that meant a lot to the person that was receiving them. And uh, until I um, recently discovered that a lot of um, the things that were going on were about buried trauma in myself, I didn't realise uh, that there was that the whole thing was being misinterpreted by her, mm, right. um, and and she she was hearing something else, and it was implied at one point that I was giving these things to buy love, you know. Mm. Now I was aware that I was aware that that was a possibility because I knew about the sociologist Borger who talked about the gift as a way of controlling someone. And I knew that very well. And I thought, oh, my goodness, shall I tell them? I know I understand all of that. This is freely given. But what was happening is that I was dissociating as this, as this relationship went on and re-experiencing, re-invoking my traumas from the past 
in which I tried mm. to rescue my mother from a crappy marriage and her isolation and the father who had an alcohol problem. So it all became caught up and very distressing for me and for her, and we couldn't work out. We really didn't sit down to talk about what was going on. That sounds like mm. quite an impasse there, Jesse. Thank you so much for calling in. Liz, I, I heard you making those empathetic sounds of listening, and it sounds like maybe <laughs> this is a situation that you have encountered in the past, the misinterpretation mm. of, of these yes. uh, this love language. Talk a little bit about that. Yes. Look, I think this is a big one. I think this is really important because... You know, this is where we look at what is the what is the intention of the love language and how it's being expressed, right? And does that get misinterpreted? You know, because we've spoken about conditioning, right? So if if love languages, you know, have been used in a negative way previously, and he's touching on this idea that his friend, you know, interpreted, misinterpreted his gift giving as a form of sort of manipulation perhaps or that he had ulterior motives underlying it. Um, we don't talk enough about the meaning behind yeah. our love language, right? We don't lay the meaning and our intention out in vivid detail and and that's the, that's the very thing that is going to get leave us vulnerable, right, for misinterpretation either in a negative way. You're doing this because, you know, you want to do something that's a little bit sort of uncomfortable for me or I don't like this. In fact, it seems like you're, you know, you can in, interpret, uh, you can place a negative interpretation mm. into something that perhaps isn't there. But also on the other side, people often don't see the positive intention as well, right? So it just totally gets missed. So perhaps someone who really, you know, their love language is physical touch or words of affirmation, they may not see the love language being expressed through acts of service. It's totally sort of not seen because it's not described. It's, it's like not up front. ships in the night. I think so yes. much of what we're talking about always comes back to the self, doesn't it? Let's go to, Absolutely. Let's go to Karen in Sydney. Tell us about your love, love language, Karen. Well, I, I'd never really thought a lot about it. Um, I had, you know, kids and uh, I told them when they were quite little how much I loved them. And then as particularly with my daughters um, and to some extent my son, it became very difficult when they became teenagers and they went through that whole period of telling me how much they hated me and they never wanted to grow up to be like me. And it caused me to reflect on the fact that my mother's mother died when she was 12 and she was sort of, I think, she, you know, I don't think she got a lot of love growing up, you know, in the 1940s and 50s. And I, I thought no one's ever told me, my mother never told me that she loved me. I, you know, I couldn't remember that. But of course I loved my kids and I just, I was, you know, I did a lot for them. I, I you know, I was working pretty much full time, but I also made lots of beautiful meals and always made sure that they had everything they needed. And it wasn't until my eldest daughter, who's now 28, got to, ah, I think she was about 19 or 20 and she went to university in the UK and she read that book and she came back to me and she said, mum, I understand you now. Mm. You 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 give love through acts of service and, and we didn't understand that. We wanted you to be like other mothers who sort of said, oh, darling, you're so beautiful, I love you, you're... And I, 
but it's funny. It was like it. It was like it's changed everything now. She talked mm. to the other kids, and now we all are very verbal and demonstrative. And it's like a, oh, I don't know, it's a huge it's like relief. A, it sounds like fantastic. a light bulb moment for you, Karen. It was. Yeah, that Eureka like, moment. I'm so grateful that she did that. And it's, you know, it's changed everything. It hasn't changed my relationship with my mother, unfortunately, but um, certainly with sounds my children, which has been terrific. Like a beautiful repair. You know, there's this sort of rupture in the, in the teenage years, which has to happen. You know, teenagers are developmentally driven to individuate so they need to kind of reject their parents to some degree but you know the beautiful repair that your child has then come back and said oh now we see you know that's 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 quite a like a really special thing that's occurred for you it makes me wonder liz whether love languages in the final minute or so we have we've Mm. been hearing quite a split you know the dads who went to work silently that was their active service and you know the moms who were giving their service another way is love like are love languages ever gendered in your experience uh you know i would can only obviously go from observation and I, I would say that there, it does seem you can get some sort of trends. Um, but look, like physical touch, for instance, we might typically want to say, you know, men men might sort of have, be driven more with physical touch from a sexual perspective. Although I, I, then I think physical touch for women is often a bit more non-sexual and a lot, a, mm. a bit more kind of, you know, um, sort of, you know, sort of, you know, touch in a different way. So I think, you know, and and as I was listening to the last caller, I was also thinking about, you know, quality time and my own children. I've often sort of wanted to spend time with my boys talking about feelings, you know, because that's kind of my background. And I just recently realized that quality time with one of my sons is doesn't want to talk about feelings at all. He wants to talk about astronomy and science. And, you know, so you've kind of got to look within the love language. But I think, I, I think it's a it's a tough call to sort of say is anything particularly gendered in the broader categories, but I think if you delve deeper into a category, as I say, like physical touch, you might be looking at different components of physical touch, let's say, that may be more gendered, words of affirmation. I think, you know, there's some research in regards to women and how off, how many words, you know, a woman will sort of say um you know, in, a, in, a, in compared yeah. to a male, and and perhaps there's an increase there. So you can probably you can probably definitely find some trends. If, but I would say you need to delve deeper into the minutia of the love languages Indeed. rather than just looking at them categorically. Liz Neal, thank you so much for your uh, wonderful insights today. Liz Neal is a couples therapist and psychologist. The book that this conversation is based on is by Gary Chapman. Many of you texting in for that that book title. It's The Five Love Languages, The Secret to Love That Lasts. I reckon if you put love language book into your search engine, you will find the title of that and it will be very easy for you to find. Just one final text. Someone's texted in to say there are also the neurodivergent love languages, which may or may not align with the conventional five. One, info dumping. Two, parallel play. Three, support swapping. Four, crush my soul back into my body. And five, I found this cool rock I thought you might appreciate. Very interesting. Thank you so much. The Too Hard Basket is next. Australia is in the midst of a housing crisis. And in part, it's because we think of a house as a commodity, something designed to generate profit. Well, over the next three weeks, the Philosopher's Zone is running a three-part series that asks the question, what if we thought about housing differently? 
say from the perspective of feminist ethics or contemporary indigenous ideas around land and private property value. That's housing on The Philosopher's Zone, 5.30 Sunday afternoons on RN, or you can hear it now on the ABC Listen app. Got an issue you just can't fix? On the fence about what direction you should take? Been wrestling with a situation that's out of control? Let's take it out of the too hard basket. Yes, that time when you challenge us to solve something from your too hard basket. Here to help our writer, speaker and appearance activist Carly Finlay and writer and comedian Yanni Ajisalu. Carly, Yanni, welcome to Life Matters. Now, I'm not looking for your solutions to the dilemma just yet, but I just want to do a little toe dip into the pool and find out where you stand on this particular issue of uninvited house guests, not just for a pop-in, but for overnight stays. Yanni, are you yay or nay on this topic? Oh, I'm nay, but then I am coming from a family environment of Greek extraction where boundaries are something that you need to build. Um, so I'm kind of like one of these things and I have relatives turning up all the time, but I, I got to tell you, like when sentences are something that can be invaded in the middle of them, you do kind of, kind of, when you have a physical bricks and mortar house, you're like, yeah, no, I think you should call before you come over. Okay. So it's the safety of your own space that you have crafted for yourself over years that you are craving. I hear you, Yanni. Carly, how about you? How do you feel about the, uh, unexpected overnight guest? I have no room in my house for an unexpected guest, so no, absolutely not. Okay. Well, this is very clear, straightforward. We know where you both stand on this. Let's hear May, who's written in. And May says, My brother from overseas has just messaged me to say that he, his wife, and teenage child have booked and paid for tickets to come and stay with us for a week in the school holidays, which are happening very soon. There was no mention of these plans prior to booking, not a word to me or my husband. We're a family of five. Our house is not large. It's not convenient at all. In fact, I find it quite rude, especially since they will expect us to be their tour guides. How do I handle it? Do I say something right now? Maybe make inquiries, suggestions of accommodation nearby, or just bite my tongue for the sake of family. Carly, uh, we know where you stand on it. We know that you don't have much space, but has this situation ever happened to you? Yes, it has. It, it was very strange, actually. Uh, around 20 years ago, I moved from country New South Wales to Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And I reckon in my just before my first week of work in an office, you know, my first proper job, uh, my mum rings and she says, Phil's coming to stay with you. And I said, who's Phil? <laughs> she said, Phil's your, your father's old next-door neighbour's son. Oh, right. Yes, of course. I'm like, right. Don't you remember Phil? um, Never met Phil. Hadn't heard of him for years. Anyway, Phil came. He was a year older than me. Um, It was great. It was really good. I did have a a spare bedroom at that time, but I wasn't expecting Phil to come to stay. And we hung out. We went to the movies. We introduced him to some Australian music. It was really good. And then I went to stay with Phil when I went to the UK. And how did that go? Yeah, it was fine. Um, he he had a partner by then, and I I would come and go as I as I wanted. Um, it was a bit stressful because I didn't know how to work the locks on their doors. Okay, <laughs> okay so <laughs> aside from the detail of the locks, it actually turned out pretty well. How about you, Yanni? You've, you're in the fortress of your home. You say, you know, there's some cultural uh, issues to factor in. How do you deal with family members overstepping their boundaries? 
Oh well, I I got to tell you, and I think this I think what I'm about to say is only based on recent recent history, and it's just that people don't change easily. So I was going to say, uh, listen, I will always give the advice to say something, but I wouldn't get too I wouldn't get too bound up in it going well. And the longer this sort of thing's been happening, and I'm, I don't mean this sort of thing specifically, like I'm sure it hasn't been a lifetime of turning up from overseas with with a family. But, you know, a lifetime of just saying, hey, I'm going to do this thing and you're going to be fine with it, right? Without actually saying that out loud or asking if it's fine. Just doesn't really change that much. So, <clears throat> but I, I, I definitely think that they should, uh, that May should say something because um, I read it, I read a whole thing, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and, and it's all encoded in the phrasing, you know, like this very understated, um, very understated phrases that the sort of, the sort of people pleasers say, for example, like, you know, we say things like, it's not very convenient at all, like, which is sort of just say a negative thing using a very positive oh. word, like, yeah, the, wait, is May- it convenient? No, it's actually not very at all. Well, May's <laughs> actually quite forthright, I think, the message saying, I find it quite rude. I don't think there's any pussyfooting around that thought and, and not much people pleasing. Yeah, but she says it straight afterwards. She says it, that, that's her truth. That's her true thoughts. So We're getting some, some like, deep we psychoanalysis here in this dilemma. Let's, let's think about how if May was to say something, how how that might work out. I mean, it is just for a week. I was looking at the Facebook posts yeah. saying, uh, you know, you're lucky to have family visit you. Enjoy. Life is too short. Don't get hung up on non-important details. And other people saying, be uncomfortable. Embrace the chaos. And many people also referring to the fact that we haven't been able to travel and visit family for a long time because of this pesky pandemic. Should we factor that in here, that maybe there's a lot of love happening in the background? Maybe this is a mismatch of love languages, Carly Finlay. Yes, perhaps. I mean, I think it is exciting when you have an unexpected person come, but it doesn't happen very often now, does it? Like, I mean, even even when you get a, a friend turn up at your house to pick you up, it's kind of like they text you to say, I'm here. So, you know, they don't knock on the door and there's not that interaction. And so, yeah, to have a house guest, I guess it, it isn't a nice thing and, and, a, and a show of love because you you know, we haven't been able to travel. Um, we often plan things and, and are very busy and so don't have that spontaneity now. So let's say uh, the family members, uh, May's just going to put her foot down and and say, I'm actually going to book these people an accommodation. I'm not having it. It's very rude. I find it very inconvenient. I don't want to be your tour guide. Uh, how do you have that conversation, Yanni, about, hey, I'm booking you a lovely Airbnb close by to where I'm yeah. staying? Yeah, I'll, I agree. I agree with Carly what she's saying, but also, yeah, I just want to say to the people posting on the Facebook, I don't agree. I don't disagree that it's uh, it's it's based in what people think of as love, but it's just about sometimes also asking is a, is a love based thing, right? So, and I think that's sometimes where you just get a bit mixed up. I'm not suggesting like her family's doing it to punish her or anything like that. No, certainly it's not. It's just these blithe things that people do without thinking. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think the best thing to do and the best way to present it is is kind of what you just said there. Beverly is to sort of encode it in 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 the phrasing because the thing is, I'm sure when 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 her brother got in touch and was like, "Good news, I'm yeah. coming with the family to stay with you," and then she can just do the exact same thing. She can go, "That's great news, even better news. <laughs> I've found three places right near us that you can hire for six hundred and fifty dollars a week." Catching that positive vibe, out, yeah. Mm, and yeah. You, you don't have to say the other bit out loud, which is. Oh well, you know, if you can't afford one week's accommodation, then you can't really afford to travel, really, can you? So, 
Yeah, that's well, that's a that is a tricky mm. one. That's a tricky money conversation to have. I like the way you are trying to catch onto that positive vibe and just keep yeah. pushing it along. Because, Carly, I guess the the miscommunication, the danger could be. It's not that I don't want you to visit. I do want you to visit, but I just can't accommodate you at this time. That can be a hard message, and and offense can be caused, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's really important to note, as Yani said, you know, that the person coming, um, that it's a holiday for them. But the, for the person potentially putting that person up or having to do the, no, we can't have you here, that's a really awkward situation. So there's a bit of a power imbalance there, you know. So, yeah, I think it is about being gentle and just saying, look, at this stage, I can't have you, but, um, you know, let's go out for a nice dinner. Here's an Airbnb. And Yanni, you mentioned money before and and budget mm. issues. But what if money is an issue? How well, do you do? You, would you offer fine, to help pay? No, well, that's fine. But you know what? They need to say it out loud. You know, because that's the thing when people. And I know that's the hard bit, but that's what fosters strong relationships. Is you go, you know, when things get tough, you don't just stop asking me and just do things. You oh, are honest fun. and talk to me, and then I can say, hey, I didn't know that. Listen, of course. We'll do what we can and we can rearrange it because it is only a week. But the thing is, you know, if someone has money falling out of their pockets and then they're, you know, they're keeping in your small two bedroom house with your four person family, well, you know, that actually does seem to me pretty inconsiderate. It is kind of funny. I, I am aware of people who are quite wealthy, but when it comes to paying for accommodation, suddenly the, the wallet gets a bit tight there. I'm not yeah. saying this is a situation, but I have encountered that as no. well. Um, Carly, if that's not the case, if money is an issue, would you offer to help pay for accommodation? Yes, but it wasn't my decision for them to come. Fair enough. Yes. <laughs> Good point, Carly Finlay. <laughs> um, and what about the matter of being a tour guide? Uh, sounds like there's expectations beyond accommodation. Carly. Oh, Sorry? I'm, I, I'm happy to do that. Yeah. I'm happy to do that. Not every day. Um, because, you know, if they're expecting you to take time off work as well as put them up in the you know in the room and be a tour guide that's hard but yeah being being a tour guide on your on your own terms i think that's really fun when in you, your own city yeah what yeah. do you think yanni would you be the tour guide would that be fun for you yeah look i love doing that stuff you know and if it's family my mum loves doing that stuff there's always people around it i mean obviously i don't know about this situation but but again you know it's just about whether or not it's communicated you know if they because it, it, it doesn't really say how how long uh, in the school holiday. So, yeah, I mean, that's probably soon. But, you know, it depends how much notice you get given, whether or not you can take time off work, all those things. Yeah, in Victoria, the, the school holidays are tomorrow, in fact. Um, thank you both for your wisdom. I really appreciate you chiming in on this too hard basket. Writer, speaker and appearance activist Carly Finlay and writer and comedian Yanni Ajisalu. And if you've got a conundrum like May that you'd like us to tackle, email lifematters at abc.net.au and put too hard basket in the subject line. We will work with you to keep some details uh, anonymous. Uh, Erica Valls, what is the text line saying this morning? Oh, my goodness. There is such a range of answers here. Claire has texted, this is not on May. You can't land virtually unannounced, especially on a family of five. I think she could tactfully say it's not convenient for them to stay and they could look for alternative accommodation. But Jane's come up with an interesting solution. Take the brother and his family camping for the majority of the time. <laughs> or go away 
and leave them in the house for at least some of the time. So a bit of a... Oh, a so mix. you're coming. I'm going to vacate my home and go somewhere else so you can stay. But part of the time. Love to see you by. <laughs> Well, I okay. guess I guess it's part of That's the time. That's a dilemma in operative. and of itself. Okay. Um, and another listener says, at least you've had days of notice. I have a sister who lives on the other, in, in another state and she will call me 10 minutes before she arrives to let me know <laughs> she's coming to stay. I think that might be um, intentional. <laughs> so that the, the sister can't say no, you right? You can't escape. Um, look, but we do have a lot of people like Diane supporting this idea. Sleeping on a mattress on the lounge room floor was no big deal when we visited family when I was a kid. I guess it depends on your relationship and the level of comfort expected. Me, I'd put myself out for family and probably enjoy it. And Lisa says accommodate them. They're family, airbeds for your kids. It's like camping and fun. And, and Kathleen's saying you're lucky you have family to visit you. But David Clark says, look, put it back to your brother and explain the situation. Ask him to find some solutions and advise that you'd be happy to help out. And Emma's like, it's really odd to make plans to stay with someone for a week without asking them first. I guess it just depends on each family and the level of kind of comfort that you have. Another person in support of, you know, letting the family stay, Elizabeth says, valuable for your children and your brother's child to get to know each other. Be a role model. Make the best of, of being family. And Marina says, it's not that tough. If you want them there, embrace the madness and go with it. If not, tell him. Honesty is the best way forward. And Elizabeth says, just be thankful that you have family. Kate has got a different perspective. Kate says, having the opposite problem of living in Europe and having random friends of friends you've never even met before wanting to stay with you when they visit Europe, despite the fact that you live in a one-bedroom apartment, I say set some boundaries. Say there isn't space, you work from home, and you'll be working in that period, so your tourist time is limited. Maybe plan some good day trips. I don't know about that. I mean, random friends of friends of friends that you don't know is one thing, but this person is your brother. So, you know, I understand setting boundaries for people you don't Families know. Families are complicated, Erica Vols. They really, really yes. are. And I love the fact that they're complicated. And look, Beverly, still lots of comments about love languages. Um, we asked on Facebook, what's your love language? And, and Wendy says, quality time, words of affirmation, gifts, acts of service, physical touch. And Alex says, thinking about what makes them happy and trying to do that. And uh, another listener says, do you have to subscribe to only one love language? Love language? No, you can be a polyglot. Yeah, she's saying, I'm greedy for all of the love languages and there'll be more comments headed to the Monday Inbox. Erica Voles, thank you. Life Matters producers are Michelle Weeks, Greg Muller, Emma Nobel, Beck Zajac, Nat Tenchich, Erica Voles and Tracy Tromp. Our executive producer is Angela Owens. And remember to follow Life Matters on the ABC Listen app. Catch up to all the episodes there. Send us a dilemma for the Too Hard Basket, lifematters at abc.net.au. Put Too Hard Basket in the subject line. It's been lovely hearing from you this week. We will talk again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app. It's called the oldest profession, but maybe it should be called the misunderstood profession. Hey, I'm Tilly Lawless, and I'm an author, an advocate, and a sex worker. Tall Tales and True is a podcast that brings you the best in live storytelling with a whole season of fab stories from me and other sex workers. I was in my element, actually. I was just whipping all these guys. It was just a suede whip. 
and they were all just, I've got pegs on all the nipples, they'd get their doodles out and I'd put a peg on that too. Look, maybe I'm just paranoid because I know what I am and she doesn't quite. And I'm told that my highest aspiration as a sex working parent is to ensure that she never does. One of the many things we as trans women experience in the sex industry is shaming from a client because of their own guilt. Accepting who I truly am changed everything. You can find Tall Tales and True on the ABC Listen app.